0: Welcome uh, again to Freeway. My name's Andy, and I'm here for one more week uh, after this. The time has really flown, I think, Um, but uh, I'm here covering for our senior pastor, Mason, who's enjoying some well-deserved long service leave. Uh, We've been journeying through Luke's gospel together, and today uh, I've chosen a fairly long passage, beautifully read though, um, but a long one nonetheless. Uh, I was keen not to divide it into separate passages because it's talking about one event the sending out of the the 70 or the 72. So we're gonna begin with some background info on the passage before diving into the text itself, and then we're gonna spend a bit of time thinking about what it means for us, particularly around what the character of a follower of Jesus ought to look like. In the Greek language uh, in which the New Testament is written, when someone is describing a group comprising a mix of genders, And they would always use the plural masculine form of the noun. For example, in ancient Greek, adelphē is the singular feminine noun, meaning sister. And adelphos is the singular masculine noun, which we would translate to brother. But if you wanted to talk about your siblings, and you had some brothers and some sisters, you would use the plural masculine form adelphoi. And this convention is used in many languages still today. I know we have some French speakers here. That's a, a similar uh, comparison. Um, if you were talking about your brother in Spanish, you would say hermano. If you were referring to your sister, you would say hermana. Uh, but if you were referring to your brothers and sisters, you would say hermanos, the masculine plural form of the noun. Uh, now you might be wondering why you're getting a language lesson. Uh, I promise the rest of the sermon is not gonna be about grammar or syntax or anything like that. But it's because when we approach this text, we read about uh, 70 or 72 disciples. And the assumption often is that this was a group of men. But we know from other texts in the New Testament that that isn't true. It's simply that Luke is using the masculine plural form of the noun meaning disciples. And this happened to suit some of our translators in the past that preferred women not to be involved in this ministry or the leadership of our churches. But Jesus sends out a group of 70 or 72 men and women here. Junia, who is mentioned by Paul in Romans 16, is not only an apostle, uh, but outstanding among them, he says, is likely Joanna, who is mentioned by Luke in chapter eight of his gospel. And now the the reason for the name change is that uh, ethnic names were often Romanized in order to uh, better fit within the empire. The assumption is that her Jewish name, Joanna, was Romanized to the name Junia by the time that she was in ministry in Rome. Interestingly, Bible translators for hundreds of years weren't comfortable with the idea of a woman being a disciple of Jesus or being sent out as one of the 72 or being present at his crucifixion and resurrection, then going on to lead and to plant churches, being equal in status with Paul. So they changed her name to Junius insisting that this was the masculine equivalent of her name, a bit like changing Andrea to Andrew. The thing is, there's no such use of the name Junius anywhere in ancient literature. Um, So they were caught out eventually and her name was changed back. All of this is to say that when we enter the text here this morning, we understand that Jesus is sending out both men and women, uh, all of them disciples, followers of Jesus. And now, depending on the version of the Bible that you're looking at, you might find uh, that your text says 72, or it might say 70. One of the theories uh, put forward for this is that the number comes from Genesis 10, where there are a list of names, and these names are each one indicative of the number of nations in the world. In the Hebrew manuscripts of Genesis 10, there are 70 names, but in the Septuagint, the uh, early Greek translation Uh, There were 72 names. Therefore, those copying Luke's gospel invariably chose which number suited them best. And still today, you'll see the number changes between translations. In fact, as I prepared this message, the NRSV, which is the version I was using, was updated, and they changed the number from 70 to 72. The fact remains, however, that Luke is hinting toward the idea that the gospel And inclusion in the kingdom and in the family of God will soon be for all people, not only for the Jewish people. So with some background covered, let's turn to the text. Um, We read from verse one that the Lord appointed 70 or 72 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I'm sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves, Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Australian New Testament scholar Leon Morris tells us that the harvest is plentiful means that there is much work to do, that the laborers are few, that they must not delay. It means also that they must look to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest as well as for their own strength and guidance. Prayer for more workers for God is a duty resting on those who labor for him, he writes. On verse seven in particular, which reads, remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Morris writes, this is a principle of wide application that has sometimes been overlooked in Christian activities. If the laborer is worth their wages... They are not worth more. The disciples are not to go from house to house. That would mean engaging in a social round and being entertained long after they have done their work. There is an urgency about their mission. They must press on. Similarly, another Australian New Testament scholar, Brendan Byrne, writes, there is a far greater premonition of hostility and rejection. The missionaries who go before Jesus will be vulnerable like lambs sent among wolves. Like him, they will experience both hospitality and inhospitality, acceptance and rejection. Rejection, they had encounter with prophetic gestures signaling the imminence of the kingdom. So we could understand that the work of God is both urgent and not always well-received. Jesus continues, Woe to you, Shorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, If the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyr and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But at the judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyr and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be brought down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Now, Jesus here mentions three ancient cities, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, all of whom were cities that prophets pronounced destruction upon for their depravity and their rejection of God. Charizene, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are all places that rejected Jesus. And for this reason, Jesus says that whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me, therefore God. Similarly, the 70 or 72 are given authority to represent Christ, and those who reject them are similarly rejecting God, which we read will go worse for them than it did for Sodom, Tyre, or Sidon. Byrne reflects on these passages, writing, the tone then is grim, but the narrative prepares modern Christians for the rejection that will inevitably be their lot as emissaries of the kingdom. It's all part of Luke's wider theme of seeking to incorporate the rejection of Jesus in Jerusalem and the subsequent rejection of the Christian gospel by most of Israel within the wider saving plan of God. Rejection of the 72 is also rejection of Jesus and ultimately rejection of the one who sent him into the world to offer the hospitality of God. Rejection is painful, but God's grace can overcome it and ultimately win through. From verse 17, we read that the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord... In your name, even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. On this, Indian Baptist theologian, Takatemjan Ao writes, They had begun to understand that in the name of Jesus, they were capable of doing great things. They began with love for Jesus and ended with the power to overcome the world. However, Jesus warned them not to be overexcited by their power, for it was not power that brought them into the kingdom of God. Their true sources of joy should be that their names were recorded in heaven. On verse 18, this this passage that tells us that Jesus watched Satan fall from heaven with a flash of lightning, Hong Kong theologian Diane Chen says this, Satan is the ruler of all demons and a definable enemy, not simply an amorphous force. The earthly conflict between Satan and his demons on one side and Jesus and his emissaries on the other is an expression of the conflict between God and Satan in the supernatural sphere. Foundational to Jewish apocalyptic thought is God's final defeat of Satan. In Jesus' vision, the eschatological demise of Satan is depicted as a cataclysmic fall, swift as a flash of lightning. While this cosmic scenario scenario lies yet in the future, the eventuality of Satan's destruction has already been sealed when demons submit themselves to Jesus and his agents. In anticipation of more vicious battles ahead, how comforting it is to hear Jesus say, nothing will hurt you. There will be casualties and even martyrdom, but with their names written in the book of life, these faithful disciples are assured of their eternal salvation. From verse 21, we read, at that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is a passage that always has always kind of made me laugh. Imagine having been out on the road participating in incredible acts of exorcism, of healing, Seeing people come to faith and then Jesus says, yeah, thanks God that you haven't dealt with the wise or the intelligent, um, but rather you've revealed yourself to this pack of idiots and babies. I imagine it would have been rather humbling to hear yourself described like that by Jesus. But Luke is taking the opportunity again to illustrate the great reversal that God is initiating here through Jesus. In the kingdom, intelligence, wealth and success are meaningless. What is valuable in God's eyes is faithfulness, humility, dependence upon him, love. Jesus then turns to all these disciples and he says to them privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Taka tells us that God's pleasure in revealing his truth to the poor and lowly is a thread that runs through Luke's gospel. The more dependent we are on the son of God, the more we shall know the father and of the son and the more blessed we shall be in seeing the son's glory. The disciples are truly blessed because they see and hear things that were withheld from prophets and kings in the past. Chen asks this question. She wants to know, what has God revealed and concealed? What are these things in verse 21 and all things in verse 22? The immediate context in which Jesus interprets the missionaries' exorcisms as confirmation of Satan's future defeat suggests how the future reign of God has already made itself known in the presence and work of Jesus. This is a mystery not immediately apparent to all because it takes eyes and ears of faith to appreciate it. The messianic focus of Jesus' ministry lies not in the elimination of Rome or empire, but in bringing people to physical, spiritual, and communal wholeness. So what does this mean for us, and how can we understand it in our context today? Well, we could perhaps make a connection to the way we think about mission and ministry, and suggest that we ought to embody something of the urgency and seriousness with which the 72 were sent out to teach about the kingdom of God. We could think about how we deal with rejection or how we offer hospitality. But instead, I want to stick with these last few verses and consider what is the character of a disciple of Jesus like? Jesus describes the 72 here as infants. And similarly, in chapter 9, he ended an argument between the disciples by putting a child among them, suggesting that the kingdom is for these little ones. We also read in chapter 18, 15 to 17, it says this, people were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they sternly ordered them not to do it. But Jesus called for them and said, let the children come to me and do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. We have this idea of of a childlike faith. But I can't imagine that any of us would want to send our children out to deal with demons or to be driven out of towns like the 72. Chen again writes, Contrary to human expectation, God's revelation is awarded to and eagerly received by infants who in their profound neediness are open to instruction and grateful for God's beneficence. They stand in contrast to the wise and intelligent, not because they are dull of mind, but because they are humble in status and self-perception. In his gospel, Luke gives us many examples of people who look like this. Consider Mary and Elizabeth... Elizabeth is well past her childbearing years and has grown used to the cultural shame of the day of being unable unable to bear children. And when she learns she's pregnant, she responds faithfully in contrast to her husband and says, this is what the Lord has done for me in his time when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. Similarly, Mary, upon finding out she's to bear the Messiah, responds by saying, Here am I, the servant of the the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. When we think about Luke's audience, they would have expected the events concerning the Messiah to begin in the temple, but not to focus upon the stories of two women, one too old to bear children and the other from the middle of nowhere. And yet when Mary travels to visit with Elizabeth, her cousin, Luke selects her as the first to theologize about the coming Messiah in her song, the Magnificat, which reads, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. Indeed his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has come to the aid of his child Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever." Mary here displays the characteristics of a disciple, humble and yet wise, dependent upon God and yet forthright in her assertion of the ways in which she has been blessed. By contrast, Jesus constantly comes up against the religious leaders of the day who have become so entrenched in their usual way of doing things that few of them can recognize God even when they meet him face to face. Chen writes that as for those deemed wise and intelligent by human standards, God paradoxically withholds his mysteries from them. They are not lacking in mental mental faculty per se, but their hardness of heart prevents them from discerning the saving purposes of God. Found among them are the Pharisees and the scribes who know so much about the law, yet fail to perceive the ways in which Jesus' teaching and healings reveal the heart of the matter. So let me ask you this morning, are there ways in which you've become so entrenched in what you think is right or appropriate in the way that you follow Jesus that you fail to recognize where he's at work? And how can we better imitate the likes of Mary and Elizabeth or the 72 and embody the characteristics of a disciple? Well, Paul believed that the spirit who indwells us is also working toward our transformation into something more like Jesus. We have an incredible list of some of those traits up on the wall as you enter into the worship space here. But Paul also writes the classic list in Galatians 5 of character traits that the Spirit forms in us. He says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. He adds, There's no law against such things. But he continues, And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also be guided by the spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. So we could understand that forming the character of a a, a disciple of Jesus happens in partnership with God. That it's not something the spirit does while we're asleep, but something that we have to work toward as well. We read in Galatians that we have to put to death the flesh and live according to the will of God, guided by the Spirit. And now, the way this is sometimes understood is that anything earthly or fleshly is bad, and anything spiritual must be good. But this isn't what Paul is referring to. What he's, what he's contrasting here is our inclination as humans toward living for ourselves versus God's desire for us to live for him and for our communities. The Greek term that he's using here is sarx, which is generally a negative term referring to making decisions or doing actions according to oneself alone, done apart from God. Now, this includes even things that are perfectly respectable and not actions that might fall into the category of sin. The idea being that these decisions or actions proceed out of the part of us that has not been transformed by God. So we could say then that the defining characteristic of the follower of Jesus is a recognition of our dependence upon God, not only for nice or good things that happen to us or things that we do, but indeed for all things. In John's gospel, the author records Jesus saying to his disciples that, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. As I thought this week about how one becomes more dependent upon God, I figure the only way to do it is to remove the other things in our lives upon which we have become dependent. So let me conclude by asking you what are the things that you're dependent upon in your life, if not God? And what would it look like to increase your dependence upon him by removing some of these things from your life? Let's pray together. Loving God, we're grateful for the way in which you have saved us and brought us into your family. We give thanks that we are indwelled by your spirit, empowered for the ministry of reconciliation. But that spirit, you are also transforming us more and more into someone who looks like Jesus. We pray God that as uh, we consider what it means to follow you, that Lord, you would uh, help us to partner with you in this transforming work, but that you would help us to increase our dependency upon you in whichever way that might look for each of us. We pray God for your blessing as we um, endeavor upon this and ask that God, uh, as a community of believers, we would be able to truly say that we are dependent upon you, God. So we ask for your blessing in all things, in Jesus' name, amen.